0: This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Our
1: Father, our God, thank you for giving us life this day. There are so many things that we take for granted, like the air we breathe, the food that we eat, just all of the things that uh, that we receive from your hand, which we many times fail to thank you for. And so this morning we want to thank you for everything you are and for everything you do for us. And Father, we especially thank you for your word, which is a sure guide in a world that is so confused. We ask, Father, that as we open your word and study about uh, the manner in which the Holy Spirit works in this world, that you will enlighten our minds, give us understanding, give us willing hearts to receive what you have for us in our study today. And we thank you for the privilege of approaching your throne in prayer. And we come boldly, not in our own merit, but we come boldly because we do so In the powerful name of our advocate, Jesus Christ, amen. It's difficult many times for people to conceive of the Holy Spirit as a person. And I believe that the reason why it's so difficult for many to conceive of the Holy Spirit as a person is because of the metaphors that are used in the Bible to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. For example, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as a dove. It speaks of the Holy Spirit as rain. It describes the Holy Spirit as oil. Also as fire and as wind. And so we get the impression from these metaphors that the Holy Spirit is like some natural phenomenon or some substance that oozes into people. But we need to understand that these are metaphors of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit is like a dove. The Holy Spirit is not rain. As the rain refreshes the earth and causes growth, so the Holy Spirit falls in our hearts and causes our spiritual experience to grow. The Holy Spirit is not oil, but like oil is placed in a lamp and gives light. When the Holy Spirit acts in our lives, He imparts light and He helps us to be light bearers. The Holy Spirit is not fire, but fire represents the Holy Spirit because fire cleanses and purifies. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. The Holy Spirit is not wind. Wind is used to compare a certain... uh, aspect of the Holy Spirit, which is that you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. And so you can see the effects of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but you can't see the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not some substance that is infused Or poured out inside of people. Even the expression pour out is a metaphor. The Holy Spirit is not a liquid. Are you understanding what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit is a person who is in a certain place. And he has a certain mode of operation. I'd like to read a couple of statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. On the Holy Spirit, specifically, and on the Trinity in general. In a speech that Ellen White once gave at Avondale College, uh, this is found in the book Evangelism, page 616, she said to the students there, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. She says the Holy Spirit is as much a person as God is a person. So the Holy Spirit is a person. Now many in the Adventist church these days, in different places, are questioning the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine of the Trinity. Basically, they've become Jehovah's Witnesses. Seventh-day Adventist Jehovah's Witnesses. (laughs) Because they're teaching that the only eternal God is the Father. And that Jesus at some point in the distant past was either begotten by the Father or was created by the Father. And that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but the Holy Spirit is actually A force or an energy, it's the energy of God or the force of God. Kind of like an electrical force. Ellen White, in multiple places, contradicts this new view. She explicitly, in many places, states clearly that there is a trinity of persons in the Godhead. I'd like to read just one of those. There are many, as I mentioned, but I will read only one because this is not the primary point that I want to get across. Uh, in Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 908, by the way, if you put your um, email on these sheets, I'm going to give you a full copy of everything I'm saying. So, uh, so you don't have to be real, you know, fast to take notes, although it doesn't hurt to take notes. You know, when we write things, It stays in our memory longer. And when we repeat things, people say, how do you remember the the text from Scripture? How do you remember the the pages from the Spirit of Prophecy? By repetition. And so as we give people Bible studies, we're actually benefiting ourselves as well. Because we're learning ourselves, we're, we're convicting ourselves by teaching others. Now this is what she says in this reference. Our sanctification is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the fulfillment of the covenant God has made with those who bind themselves up with Him. To stand with Him, His Son, and His Spirit in holy fellowship. Have you been born again? Have you become a new being in Christ Jesus? Then, cooperate with the three great powers of heaven who are working in your behalf. How many great powers in heaven? Three. Three. Now, what part of three don't you understand? (laughs) Three great powers in heaven. And she, she says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Explicitly, clearly, she states this. And this is only one example of many other examples that I could quote. Now, some people are aggravated because of the word Trinity. They say, that's not a Bible word. Well, neither is the word incarnation. Neither is the word millennium. Is the incarnation a biblical concept? Is the millennium a biblical concept? Yes, the word Trinity is simply a descriptive term of the Godhead. The word Trinity means triunity, it means three in unity. So it actually is not a bad word. Uh, the main criticism is that this word comes from Catholicism. And, uh, you know, people want to get away from Catholicism, especially Roman Catholics have issues with this. So, what I want us to realize as we begin our study is that God is a person, Jesus is a person, of course, and the Holy Spirit is also a person. Three persons in perfect unity. In other words, what is not mathematically true is theologically true. One plus one plus one equals one. (laughs) That is theologically correct. But it is, of course, not mathematically correct because it's absurd to say that one plus one plus one equals one. What the Bible means by three being one is not that they're one person, but rather they are three persons in perfect unity. You know, it's kind of like marriage. Jesus says that when a man and a woman get married, they are no longer one. He explicitly says in Matthew 19, they are no longer one. (laughs) they're no longer excuse me they're no longer two (laughs) they're no longer two what are they (laughs) thank you they're one now um, are you husband and wife Um, I must be seeing double (laughs) because I see two but Jesus says they're what They're one. Two persons. And how are they one? God wants them to be in perfect unity. So, with the Godhead, there are three in perfect unity. And Jesus prayed. He says, I want my 12 disciples to be one. As you and I are one. See, there's the comparison. In other words... Like he wanted 12 to be one, he and his father are one, but the 12 disciples did not all jump into one body. They were still 12 individuals with 12 personalities, but Jesus wanted them to be in perfect unity. Is this clear? Now, let's go on to talk about how God administrates the universe. How God accomplishes His work in the universe. The way that God works has been revealed to us. The nature of the Godhead has not been revealed to us. But the mode in which God operates the universe has been clearly revealed in Scripture. Now let's begin by taking a look at Psalm 8 in verses 3 through 8. Psalm 8 in verses 3 through 8. I want you to notice that God's original plan for Adam included two things. Psalm 8 and verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Then he asked the question, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him, this is speaking about the creation of Adam, For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him, who wears crowns? Kings. So Adam was created to be what? King. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, every king has a territory over which he rules. So what is the territory of this king that God crowned? Continues saying, you have made him to have what? Dominion. There's the idea of rulership again. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Another expression that means you have made him to rule over all things. And then we have the explanation, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. When the Bible uses the expression Beasts of the field, birds of the air, and fish of the sea. It means everything. Sky, earth, and waters. In other words, Adam was created to be king, and the realm of his dominion was everything that was found on planet earth. But then, of course, as you know, Adam abdicated the throne. Let's read Romans chapter 6 and verse 16 where we have the principle about what happened to Adam. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Here the Apostle Paul expresses a very important principle. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey?" whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. In other words, we become servants of the one that we choose to obey. So now Adam, instead of being lord, was what? Was servant. In other words, he was no longer the ruler. And the planet no longer was his realm of dominion the one who overcame him now took the throne and his territory. Allow me to read you an interesting statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 67, where Ellen White amplifies this idea about how Adam lost his position as king and he also lost his realm of dominion. Ellen White in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 67, says, at his creation... Adam was placed in dominion over the earth. But by yielding to temptation, he was brought under the power of Satan. And then Ellen White quotes, as the biblical backing for this, 2 Peter 2.19, which expresses the same principle as Romans 6, verse 16. She quotes this verse, Of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. So whoever overcomes you, you are in bondage to that person. Then she explains, when man became Satan's captive, the dominion which he held passed to his conqueror. Are you catching the picture? So who's sitting on the throne after Adam yields to the tempter? Satan now is sitting on the throne. And he says, this is my world. And by the way, how many of the descendants of Adam listened to the devil? In other words, this whole planet was filled with people who chose to obey this new ruler. She continues saying, When man became Satan's captive, the dominion which he held passed to his conqueror. Thus Satan became the god of this world. She's quoting 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He had usurped. Now, he wasn't the legitimate ruler. He was an illegitimate ruler. But nevertheless, he was still the ruler. He had usurped that dominion over the earth which had been originally given to Adam. And now comes the good news. But Christ, by his sacrifice, paid the penalty... For sin. How? How was Jesus going to do it? Sacrifice. By his sacrifice, paying the penalty of sin, would not only redeem man, but recover the dominion which he had forfeited. All that was lost by the first Adam will be restored by the second. Amen. <laughs> That's a great statement in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 67. Now, the Bible tells us that Satan laid, come, laid claim to dominion over this earth. Notice Luke chapter 4 and verses 5 through 7. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. This is when the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. Kingdoms that would have belonged to Adam. And Notice what the devil says. This is Luke 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Is the devil laying claim to this earth, to being the ruler of this earth? He most certainly is. And then he blasphemously says, Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. So are you catching the picture? Adam, originally the king, the earth his realm of dominion. By listening to the tempter, Satan takes the throne and takes the dominion. Every person in the history of the world, with the exception of Jesus, became a servant of Satan, because we all sinned, and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so somehow, the dominion had to be recovered. How could it be recovered? As I mentioned yesterday, the law of God demands absolute perfection. Absolute obedience. How many in the history of the world can render the law what the law requires? There is none righteous, no, not one. Now the law also says, obey me perfectly and live. But if you don't obey me perfectly, you must what? You must die. So we have a double whammy. We can't offer the law the life that the law requires, and we, can't, and we don't want to offer the law the death that the law requires. So how could this problem be solved? The fact is that Jesus said, because Jesus is the creator of all. You know, whenever I say this, somebody says, well, you know, I was actually born from my mother. Jesus didn't create me. I said, yeah, and where was your mother? Where did your mother come from? Well, she came from her mother. And where did her mother come from? (laughs) And so you go all the way back to the beginning and you end up with whom? With Adam and Eve. When Jesus created Adam and Eve, He created the entire human race. And therefore, He who created all could offer to take the place of all. Only the Creator of everyone could offer to take the place of everyone. And so Jesus said, I'm going to go down to planet earth and I'm going to face the tempter like Adam did. I'm going to do battle. He's going to tempt me in all things. Far, far greater temptations than Adam ever faced. And I'm going to beat him. I'm going to offer the law absolute perfection that the law requires. And then, after I offer the law, the perfection that the law requires, then I'm going to take all of the sins of all of those people and I'm going to take them upon my shoulders and I'm going to suffer the death that they should suffer. And I'm going to do that in place of everyone who has ever drawn (laughs) breath. Is that good news? Man, is that good news. So now there was hope. So what was going to spell the doom of Satan? The perfect life of Jesus as an immaculate lamb slain. You see, if Jesus lived a perfect life and Jesus bore the the sins of the world and died for them, Satan would be defeated. And Jesus would now take the throne and the dominion. Notice John chapter 12 and verses 31 to 33. John chapter 12, 31 to 33. This is just a few days before the death of Christ. And he had something very interesting to say. John 12, verse 31. Jesus stated, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of Of this world will be what? Cast out. In other words, he's no longer going to be what? He's no longer going to be the ruler. Now, what event spelled the doom of the ruler? It continues saying, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. What is it that was going to spell the doom for the ruler of this world that would cast him out as the ruler of this world? The death of Jesus on the cross would spell his doom. Desire of Ages, page 758. Ellen White amplifies this biblical point where she says, Christ did not yield up his life till he had accomplished the work which he came to do. And with his parting breath, he exclaimed, It is finished. Now listen carefully. The battle had been won. So when Jesus said, it is finished, what? The battle battle not would be won. The battle had been won. His right hand and his holy arm had gotten him the victory. Had gotten him the victory. As a conqueror, he planted his banner on the eternal heights. Was there not joy? Now remember this was there not joy among the angels? All heaven triumphed in the Savior's victory. Satan was defeated. And he knew that his kingdom was lost. (laughs) So when did Satan lose his kingdom? See, the devil wants us to think that he's on the throne today. But he's been thrown off the throne. Jesus is on the throne and Jesus is the legitimate ruler of planet earth in place of Adam who lost his dominion originally. Now, did you notice that Ellen White here says, Was there not joy among the angels, all heaven triumphed in the Savior's victory? Would you like to know which song was sung in heaven? Well, we have to go to Revelation 12. See, in John chapter 12, this is just a few days before the death of Christ. Revelation 12 is looking back and describing the moment of Christ's victory. This is is being described 60 years after it happened. Revelation chapter 12 and verses 10 through 12. It says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. Notice, and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, was the devil the accuser in the Old Testament? Did he accuse Job? Do you know that when Moses died... The Bible says that God buried him you know Moses is a, is a unique case because the Bible says that God buried him is the only person in scripture that God buried and actually it wasn't God it was the angels we're going to notice that God through the angels buried him and nobody knew where his tomb was which is unusual among the Jews because they marked the tombs of their heroes they had they marked David's tomb they knew where Abraham and his family were buried recently uh, they found archaeologically a tomb that said here lies Daniel the prophet of course his body wasn't in it so they marked the tombs of their heroes but you know with Moses nobody knew where his tomb was because because after he died Jude 9 says that there was a contention over the body of Moses in fact Michael who is a, a name for Christ in the Old Testament it means who is like God came to resurrect Moses. And the devil contended with Michael. And Ellen White describes, she says that the devil bitterly complained that Jesus had come to take away his prey. Jesus uses the word prey. <laughs> and the, the argument was, Jesus says, well, uh, the devil says, well, Moses struck the rock. He disobeyed you. He's a sinner. He's mine. Jesus says, yeah, that's true. But he accepted my sacrifice. And they'll say, what sacrifice? You haven't died yet. Oh, but I'm going to, and you can take it to the bank, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and so Jesus resurrects Moses. And and the devil accuses Moses and complains. He was the accuser of the brethren, but now notice what he continues saying. Then I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Notice, it doesn't say will come. Have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been what? Has been. Past. Has been what? Cast down. When did that happen according to John 12? When Jesus died. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So, how did heaven react when the accuser of the brethren was cast out and Jesus took over the kingdom? <laughs> they rejoiced. But now I want you to notice the, con, the, the contrast. It says, Whoa! You see the contrast? Rejoice! Whoa! <laughs> Up there, rejoice. Down here, whoa! <laughs> whoa! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you because he was cast out having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time did the devil know that he lost his throne and he lost his dominion do you think that the devil was just going to say "Okay, I give up you know you you beat me it's yours no what the devil says to Jesus, he says, okay, you took the throne, you legally took the throne, and you, and you legally took over the planet that was mine. In other words, you, you took it away from me as the second Adam. He says, but if you want it, you have to come and get it. So now, God's people have to fight for every square inch. Because the devil, even though that, no, he, he knows he's legally lost, is not going to give up without a fight. Are you with me? Now we need to go to the day of Pentecost. And you'll see why we went through what we just went through in the the light of Pentecost. Go with me to Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. There are several things here that I want us to notice. It says, Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. That's the first point that I want you to especially remember. There was a mighty, rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. The second point that I want you to remember. Wind and what? Fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all, listen carefully, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. So, what happened when they were filled with the Spirit? They began to speak with other tongues. That that means uh, languages. And who gave them this utterance? Who gave them these tongues? As the Spirit gave them utterance. So, who imparted the gift of tongues? The Holy Spirit. And what phenomena did, were, uh, existed there? Wind and fire. Now I ask you, when was the gift of tongues first given in Scripture? At the Tower of Babel. <laughs> yeah, this was not the first time. Now, granted, the purpose was different. (laughs) The purpose at the Tower of Babel, see, what, what the Babel builders had planned to do, they wanted to establish a centralized civilization in rebellion against God. And they all spoke the same language, which means that they were all on the same page. They wanted to consolidate rebellion. And God said, I'm not going to allow it to happen. Is it much more difficult for rebellion to consolidate into a centralized system when you have different cultures and different languages? Yes. yes, it's much more difficult for rebellion to become universal because everybody is fighting among each other. Is that happening today? You better believe it. And so the Lord says if I allow this to go on, they're, they're, they were building this tower in this city. In rebellion, let us make a name for ourselves, they say. In other words, this is a rebellious enterprise. So God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to confuse their languages so that you have different nations and different peoples so rebellion cannot consolidate and become universal. Of course, the purpose then was to divide. But that created a problem because on the day of Pentecost you have all these different languages. How are you going to share the gospel? (laughs) So God says, now I will undo Babel. (laughs) And I will give my disciples the ability to speak these tongues, to unite, so that they can hear the gospel. But the first time that the gift of tongues was given was at Babel. And the reason I bring this to view is because... The Bible tells us, in Genesis 11, 8 and 9, if you want to go there with me, Genesis 11, 8 through 9, something very interesting about what happened at the Tower of Babel. And it has a direct relationship with what happened on the day of Pentecost. Genesis 11, verses 8 and 9. It says there, So the Lord scattered them abroad, from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, and now listen carefully, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Who confused the language? The Lord Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So who did the confusing of the languages, who gave the gift of tongues, and who scattered them? The Lord Lord did. Now allow me to read you an interesting statement from Ellen White. Story of Redemption, page 73. Story of Redemption, page 73. She's speaking about the Tower of Babel episode, and she says, They had built their tower to a lofty height. When the Lord sent two angels to confound them in their work. How, how did it happen? Hmm. The Lord sent two angels to confound them in their work. Men had been appointed for the purpose of receiving word from the workmen at the top of the tower, calling for material for their work, which the first would communicate to the second, and he to the third, until the word reached those on the ground. Now listen, as the word was passing from one to another in its descent, the angels confounded their language. And when the word reached the workmen upon the ground, material was called for which had not been required. Lightning from heaven as a token of God's wrath broke off the top of their tower, casting it to the ground. Which compared to lightning in scripture? In Ezekiel 1, angels are compared to lightning. So the Lord confused the languages. The Lord scattered them. Ellen White amplifies and explains that the Lord used two angels to confuse their languages. Now, why do I bring this up? Because it's related to what happened on the day of Pentecost. Go with me to Psalm 104 and verses 1 through 4. Psalm 104 and verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to read, first of all, from the New King James Version. And then I'm going to read from the NIV. Forgive me. (laughs) Because I believe that the NIV uh, caught the nuance more clearly than the New King James. And I'm not going to amplify that point because I told you where I'm coming from yesterday. (laughs) New King James Version. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. And now listen. Who makes the clouds his chariot. What do clouds represent in scripture? Angels. Who walks on the wings of the wind. Now listen. Who makes his angels spirits, his ministers, a flame of fire. Now, I want to read it from the NIV because it's a little difference. It's a little difference. You notice that the New King James Version says, He makes his angels spirits. Let me tell you something about the word spirits. In the Hebrew language, the word spirit is the word ruach. And that same word is translated in the Old Testament spirit and wind. Identical word. Whenever you find wind in the Old Testament, it's ruach. When you find the word spirit, it's ruach. So it can be translated spirit or wind. The same in the New Testament. The word pneuma is translated spirit. But when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, he said the pneuma is the wind. So it's very legitimate to translate the word ruach and the word pneuma as wind rather than spirit. Spirit. So it would be very legitimate to say he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What were the two phenomena on the day of Pentecost? Wind and fire. Now listen to the way the NIV reads. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind and now notice he makes winds his messengers flames of fire his servants I believe that is a better translation now who was the psalmist referring to when he said here he makes winds his messengers and flames of fire his servants who are those messengers and servants that are compared with wind and with fire Hebrews 1, verse 7 makes it absolutely clear. Hebrews 1, verse 7 quotes from Psalm 104 and explains who these messengers and who these servants are. It says there, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits. Once again, it could be translated who makes his angels what? winds. And his ministers, a flame of fire. So who are the winds and who are the flames of fire? The angels. The, uh, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, whom I believe to be the Apostle Paul, says that it was the angels. So you're saying, Pastor Boy, you're saying that it's the angels on the day of Pentecost that actually gave the disciples the ability to speak in different languages and share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, that is exactly what I believe. But the glory is not for the angels because the angels are simply doing God's bidding. But God does it through the ministry of the angels. That is the missing link in our understanding of how God operates the universe, I believe. Now allow me to read you some very interesting statements from Ellen White. The little old lady got this straight. In the devotional book, My Life Today, page 58. Listen carefully to what she says. My Life Today, page 58. She says, when the truth in its simplicity is lived in every place. When what? When the truth in its simplicity is lived in every place. Now listen carefully. Then God will work through his angels as he worked on the day of Pentecost. And hearts will be changed so decidedly that there will be a manifestation of the influence of genuine truth as is represented in the descent of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Here's another one. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page uh, 57. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 57. She says, when the angels of heaven come among us, when who comes? When the angels of heaven come among us and work through human agents, there will be solid, substantial conversions after the order of the conversions after the day of Pentecost. Powerful. Here's another one, Manuscript Releases, Volume 10, page 112. How did she know this? (laughs) Lucky guess. (laughs) Manuscript Releases, Volume 10, page 112. Listen carefully. This is the most powerful of all. She says, All heaven is interested in your salvation. And angels of God are waiting to do for you what they did for the early disciples on the day of Pentecost. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? What happened on the day of Pentecost is that God unleashed upon planet earth all of the heavenly hosts to help the disciples in the preaching of the gospel. You see, before this in the Old Testament, every time God intervened, the devil said, Hey, how, how dare you infringe on my territory? I'm the king here. But when Jesus gained the victory at the cross, this is his. And so he says, I'm not infringing on your territory. I'm sending my armies to my territory. Thank you. (laughs) Are you with me? The angels are waiting. Now let me just digress a little bit, amplify this point a little bit more. Let's talk a little bit about the chariots of God. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. You know that you've read the vision Ezekiel chapter 1, right? It's a very exotic vision. It's one of the most symbolic and complex visions that we find in Scripture. And if you read it carefully, you're going to find the Trinity there. Because you have God the Father who is sitting on the throne Sapphire throne. Then you have the hands like a son of man under the wings of the living creatures. And it says that the spirit is in the living creatures. (laughs) So you have the trinity there expressed symbolically. And you know these, these living creatures, they're moving some wheels. And the wheels appear to be like a wheel within a wheel. Everything seems to be in confusion. Now, let's read Ezekiel 1, verses 12 through 14. It says, And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. So the living creatures, where did the living creatures go? They say, oh, I'm going here and I'm going there. No, no, no. They went where the Spirit wanted them to go. And they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like What? burning coals of fire and like the appearance of torches fire was going back and forth among the living creatures the fire was bright and out of the fire went what? lightning and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a torch of lightning so what are the living creatures which represent the angelic hosts what, what, what are the living creatures compared to? They're compared to, several times, to torches. It says here they're compared to lightning. They're compared to coals of fire. Now, this vision speaks about the living creatures, the angelic hosts moving the wheels. The wheels represent the events of history, the movements of history. Now, allow me to read you three interesting statements from the writings of Ellen White. So you see the relationship between God and the work of the angels and the Holy Spirit. In volume five of the te- testimonies page 751, five testimonies, 751, Ellen White explains, there were wheels within wheels in an arrangement so complicated that at first they appeared to Ezekiel to be all in confusion. Some people believe that they were wheels at right angles. So it appeared like you know, and, and they and probably they were like this at right angles. And if you read the vision, it says that they that they could move at a moment's notice, left, right, front, back. They didn't have, in other words, they didn't have to turn around and go. No, they could go in all directions. She continues saying, listen carefully, but when they moved, it was with beautiful exactness and in perfect harmony now listen heavenly beings were impelling these wheels who was impelling the wheels heavenly Heavenly beings were impelling these wheels and above all upon the glorious sapphire throne was the eternal one while around about the throne was the encircling rainbow emblem of grace and love. So who was impelling or pushing the wheels? Heavenly beings. That refers to whom? To the angels. Now notice what she says on page 752. Evidently she forgot what she wrote on page 751. Not really. (laughs) This is what she says. The wheel-like complications that appeared to the prophet to be involved in such confusion were under the guidance of an infinite hand. So the wheels were what? Under the guidance of an infinite hand. And now listen to what she says. The Spirit of God revealed to him as moving and directing these wheels. Now, didn't we just read that uh, heavenly beings were doing it? Now she's saying what? The Spirit of God revealed to him as moving and directing these wheels brought harmony out of confusion. So the whole world was under his control. Whose control? The the, the antecedent is the Holy Spirit. So the whole world was under his control. And then she explains, she says, myriads, what are myriads? Thousands Myriads of glorified beings were ready at His word to overrule the power and policy of evil men and bring good to His faithful ones. So how does the Spirit guide the wheels? Through myriads of glorified beings, which represents what? Angels. Angels. Bible Commentary, Volume 4, page 1161, she has this to say. This puts it all together. She says, the tireless vigilance of the heavenly messengers, the tireless vigilance of the heavenly messengers, their unceasing employment in their ministry in connection with the beings of the earth shows us how God's hand is guiding the wheel of within the wheel. How does God's hand guide the wheel within the wheel? How does God guide the events of human history that appear to be confused but actually work harmoniously? How does He do it? The tireless vigilance of the heavenly messengers, their unceasing employment in their ministry in connection with the beings of earth shows how God's hand is guiding the wheel within a wheel. Actually, the Bible clearly reveals that God has a chain of command. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, gives us the chain. God the Father, we're told there, gives his message to whom? To Jesus. Then Jesus gives it to whom? To the Holy Spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So then Jesus gives it to the Spirit. And then the Spirit gives it to whom? To the angel. And then the angel gives it to whom? To John. And then what does John do? He writes it in a book and he sends it to what? To the church. And then what does the church do? Nothing. (laughs) Where does the chain of command break? The chain of command breaks here. God is waiting to work through the angelic hosts. Millions of them. But he'll only do it if we're ready. Now I want to give you an example of how this works. Matthew chapter 8 verses 5 through 10. Matthew chapter 8 verses 5 through 10. See we need to have a lot more to say about angels, don't we? that's the way that God operates the universe see God is seated in heaven on his eternal throne there's this conception that God is somewhere uh, you know that God is permeates the whole universe that's pretty close to pantheism my Bible teaches me that God is seated on his throne in heaven he's omniscient because nothing escapes his attention He has an infinite mind that grasps all. He doesn't have to be physically in China and in Houston and in South America to know exactly everything that's transpiring in those places. Because it's all in His infinite mind before anything even existed. He is omnipresent through His omniscience. Through his infinite knowledge. But God is in a place. Jesus did not teach us to pray our Father which art everywhere. He taught us to pray our Father which art in heaven. We can focus our prayers to the heavenly sanctuary. Where God the Father is seated. Surrounded by millions of angels. Just waiting in line to do what God tells them to do. That's the way in which God remains in active communication with every part of his dominion. I'm going to read some amazing statements from Ellen White. See, folks, we are surrounded by millions of angels. Are you afraid of going and knocking on the door? Come on! You don't think the angels are there with you? If you committed your life to Jesus Christ, you don't think the angels are going to give you words to speak? You know, the Bible says the Holy Spirit gives us words to speak. But Ellen White clearly says that at the moment that we need it, the angels will bring to our minds the words that we must speak. Because the Holy Spirit operates through the ministry of the angels. The angels are the foot soldiers of the Holy Spirit, if you please. Now let me give you a biblical example. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 10. This might be a different concept than what you've heard before. But I've been studying this for 30 years. And you know where I got the idea of studying this? From one of my seminary professors, C. Mervyn Maxwell. Tremendous church historian. He made just a, an incidental remark in class one day that really spiked my attention. I said, I've got to look into this. Basically, the question was about the Holy Spirit. And he says, I believe the Holy Spirit is in the, in the command and control center of the universe. And the angels are under his command, especially since Jesus assumed humanity. Now the spirit is, is, Ellen White says, he's the representative of the captain of the Lord's host. (laughs) By the way, there's a trinity there, isn't there? The representative of the captain of the Lord's host. Because Jesus in the Old Testament was the commander. Right? But when Jesus assumed humanity, he became one of us. Now he delegates the responsibility to the, to the Spirit. Amen. And the angels become the foot soldiers of the Holy Spirit. They accomplish the will of the Holy Spirit as he commands and tells them exactly what to do. Now let me read you Matthew 8, verses 5 through 10. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, this is the, the, case, of the, uh, the case of the centurion who the sick servant. It says, A centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. You know, what I used to think is that when Jesus speaks the word, the word somehow mystically flies through the air <laughs> and accomplishes it. But listen carefully. The centurion understand how it understood how it worked. Continues saying, But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority. having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, what's particularly interesting is Ellen White's comment about this. In the book, Desire of Ages, page 316, she explains how the servant was healed. And she's quoting the centurion. She says, As I represent the power of Rome, and my soldiers recognize my authority as supreme, so dost thou represent the power of the infinite God and all created things obey thy word. Thou canst command the disease to depart, and it shall obey thee. Thou canst summon thy heavenly messengers, and they shall impart healing virtue. Is this adding a new dimension to your understanding? Man, you know, it's comforting for for me to know that, that... all heaven is surrounding us here. Amen. Do you know how the miracles of Christ were performed? Let me read from the Spirit of Prophecy. The little old lady knew this. <laughs> ah, it's amazing. I'm more and more amazed as I read Ellen White. You know, people like to nitpick little details in the writings of Ellen White. They say, oh, yeah, you know, she said that there, were, that there were really 40 rooms in a sanatorium. There were only 38. Well, God didn't show her the number of rooms. You know, little itty-bitty, insignificant details. Well, the Bible also says that there were two demon-possessed, and in another place it says there were one. There was one. So you're going to lose your faith over that. Now listen to what she says. Desire of Ages, page 143. The angels of God are ever passing from heaven to, from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. Then she says this. The miracles of Christ, and incidentally, in volume 2 of Spirit of Prophecy, pages 67 and 68, she says all the miracles. In Desire of Ages she says, The miracles of Christ for the afflicted and suffering were wrought by the power of Christ, by the power of God, through the ministration of the angels. Amen. What was that again? The miracles of Christ for the afflicted and suffering were wrought by the power of God through the ministration of the angels. Amen. And it is through Christ... By the ministration of his heavenly messengers, that every blessing comes from God to us. Amen. So, what happened on the day of Pentecost? What happened at the cross? That was D Day. By the way, were there some battles after D Day? Oh, many of them. The allied armies had to mop up. <laughs> Are there battles after the cross? Yeah. Do you know where where the mother of all battles will be? It's called Armageddon. That's where the devil will finally be exiled to the planet without any followers. And so the cross was D-Day. Jesus removed from the rule of this world the throne and the dominion. And Jesus legally now says, I am. I this is my throne and this is my world. But of course the devil is not going to give up without a fight. And so he's going to fight for every square inch. And what is our role? Do you know what our role is? Evangelism is very simple. Our role is simply to tell people you're with a loser. <laughs> Your general already lost. And if you stay in his army, you're going to lose with him. So you better better leave the army of the loser. In other words, you better desert and come over to the winning side. That's our role as evangelism. Tell people that, you know, what we see in the world today, people say, how can you ever say that Jesus is the ruler of this world when everything is in, in dire straits and everything is falling apart? You know how? What we see in the world today is evidence of a desperate individual who is losing his power. Amen. You remember what Saddam Hussein did when, when he saw that he was lost in the Gulf War? He lit all of the oil wells. He says, I, If I go, I'm not going to go without a bang. And so what we see in the world today is evidence that the devil is desperate because he knows that his time is short. He knows that God's people are soon going to be unleashed under the power of the Spirit through the ministration of the angels and it's going to spell his final doom. Amen. And therefore he creates confusion and deceptions and war and strife because he wants people to think that he's in control. But legally Jesus is on the throne. Now let me ask you, why haven't the final events taken place? What is God waiting for? Is Jesus still the ruler? Legally? Is this still his realm of dominion? Yes. Yes. So, what's missing? Us. There's nothing more damaging to an army than a disobedient soldier. Soldiers are taught to obey the commands of their commanding officer explicitly. You see, the angels are waiting. Who are they waiting for? They're waiting for us. They're waiting for us to do what the disciples did on the day of Pentecost, before the day of Pentecost, during those ten days. They prayed such as never before. Bible study was the passion of their lives. They had a love for souls. They ironed out their differences. None of them said that any of their possessions were theirs. They put it all on the altar of sacrifice. In other words, their only focus was upon preaching the gospel. Amen. And so God could say, Now I have earthly soldiers that I can unleash the heavenly host to help. Amen. God is waiting... On us. He's waiting for us to get our act in order. He's waiting for us not to be concerned about, you know, having a secure retirement. Of course, most of you are a long ways from retirement. And I don't believe you're going to retire on this earth. Amen. <laughs> but, you know, we're always saving. You know what? We want this better and we want that better. Better car, better house, more money in the bank, It's all going to burn. The more we have, the more God is going to have to burn. (laughs) You know, what's interesting is, in the days of Noah, Ellen White says that Noah invested everything that he had in the ark. And then I add that the rest were saving for a rainy day.
2: <laughs>
1: Enough said, right? Now let me read you this famous statement. You remember Ellen White says, with such an army of youth? Yes. Have you ever read the context of that statement? Let me read it. It's in the book A Call to Stand Apart page 66. A Call to Stand Apart page 66. Notice what she says. There is no line of work in which it is possible for the youth to receive greater benefit. That is evangelism. All who engage in ministry are God's helping hand. They are co-workers with the angels. Rather, They are the human agencies through whom the angels accomplish their mission. I like that. That's the last link in the chain. She continues saying, listen carefully, angels speak through their voices and work by their hands. And the human workers cooperating with heavenly agencies, what was that again? And the what? The human workers cooperating with heavenly agencies have the benefit of their education and experience. That is the education and experience of the angels. And then she says this, as a means of education, what university course can equal this? With such an army of workers as our youth. Now you know the context with such an army of workers as our youth, rightly trained, might furnish, how soon the message of a crucified, risen, and soon-coming Savior might be carried to the whole world. How soon might the end come, the end of suffering and sorrow and sin. How soon, in place of a possession here, in place of what? In place of a possession here, with its blight of sin and pain, our children might receive their inheritance, where the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever, where the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard. Amen. So do the angels have any role to play? The angels are simply waiting for us to cooperate, for us to put everything on the altar of sacrifice to really get serious about the Lord. Now let's talk about the final outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What do you think the final outpouring of the Holy Spirit is? Does it mean that the Holy Spirit, God is going to... He's like a pitcher, he's going to pour. Well, we need to know that the last Pentecost is going to be similar to the first Pentecost. So what happened at the first Pentecost? The Holy Spirit, the commanding officer gave instructions to the angels to help the disciples in the preaching of the gospel because they were ready. So what would the latter rain be? The same? Only on a much larger scale. Listen to this statement from Ellen White. Maranatha, page 212. Maranatha, page 212. She says, before the work is closed up and the sealing of God's people is finished, we shall receive the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Angels from heaven will be in our midst. By the way, I didn't put after. She says, uh, we shall receive the outpouring of the Spirit of God. It's not dot, 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 dot. And then later on she says angels. No, immediately afterwards she says, we shall receive the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Angels from heaven will be in our midst. Amen. Wow. Review and Herald, January 20, 1891. Review and Herald, January 20, 1891. She says, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit thousands were converted. And then she explains how. Angels that excel in strength, clothed with the brightness of heaven, came to help the church and swept back the forces of Satan. The work of the Holy Spirit was not limited to apostolic days. It is not confined to any church, large or small. The field of his ministration is the world. He will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But now notice. But the instrumentalities through which the Holy Spirit works are the members of Christ's body. Those who believe in his name. It is through these light bearers that the gospel is to be carried to all the nations of the earth. Are you understanding this concept? Now, let me mention just a few things here before we have an opportunity for questions and for remarks. Let's talk a little bit about the restraining Spirit of God. Who restrains uh, evil from being fully mature and manifested on planet Earth? It's the Holy Spirit, right? But now, listen to this very interesting statement from Ellen White Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 408. Testimonies, Volume 6, page 408. Listen carefully. The restraining Spirit of God is now being withdrawn from the world. What is being withdrawn? The The restraining Spirit of God. Okay, so who restrains? The Spirit of God. Thank you. Then she says, she explains... Hurricanes, storms, tempests, fire and flood, disasters by sea and land follow each other in quick succession. Science seeks to explain all these. Yeah, it's global warming. (laughs) The, The signs thickening around us, telling us of the near approach of the Son of God are attributed to any other than the true cause. Now listen carefully. We just read that the restraining spirit of God is now being withdrawn, right? She then says, men cannot discern that the sentinel angels restraining the four winds. So who's restraining? I thought it was the spirit. The spirit through what? through the ministration of the angels. She says, Men cannot discern the sentinel angels restraining the four winds that they shall not blow until the servants of God are sealed. But when God shall bid his angels to loose the winds, that means that the Holy Spirit is what? Withdrawn because the angels no longer restrain human passions. The Holy Spirit through the ministration of the angels. She says, but when God shall bid his angels loose the winds, there shall be such a scene of strife as no pen can picture. You think the world is bad today? You ain't seen nothing yet. Only the protection of God would keep us in that time. And by the way, Amen. you know, there's this um, some, some individuals try to scare people. They say, well, during that time, you're going to have to live without an intercessor. And I believe that we're going to have to live without an intercessor. The Spirit of Prophecy says so. But then we give the idea that God is going to forsake us. You know, he's going to withdraw, you know. Not going to, Jesus isn't going to see. Listen, Jesus will no longer be the intercessor, but he will be the protector. Amen. Or did Jesus say, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the close of probation.
2: <laughs>
1: no he said I am with you always even to when Amen. into the end of the world he, he doesn't only promise to be well you know I'm, I'll be your intercessor and then I'll leave for a little while and then you have to be on your own Listen, if Jesus wasn't here to protect his people during the time of trouble his people would cease to exist Let me read you a couple more statements from the Spirit of Prophecy. And then I want to read you um, something that appeared in um, many, many years ago uh, in Signs of the Times. This is um, actually Ministry of Healing, page 417. And as I say, I've been studying this for 30 years now, very intensely. And I'm only sharing part of it. I have about 50 additional pages of scripture and quotations from the spirit of prophecy on this particular point. And I'll just mention some of those things before we come to a close. Uh, Ministry of Healing, page 417. Listen carefully to what she says. The Bible shows us God in His high and holy place. Where is God? In His high and holy place. Not in a state of inactivity. Not in silence and solitude but surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of holy beings all waiting to do His will. Amen. They're standing in line. And they say, I'm next! I'm next! <laughs> you know, it reminds me of the story of Isaiah when he was called. You know, God showed him the condition of Israel. He says, I am undone. I'm nothing. I'm a miserable sinner. But then the Bible says that God cleansed him. And then he hears a conversation in heaven. God says, now who can I send to tell Israel about this vision of of the holiest of all? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send him. (laughs) Now, See, he's been cleansed. He's seen the holiness of God. That's the first thing we have to see is the holiness of God. And then we see that we are undone. And then God can heal us. And then when he heals us, he says, now who can I send to tell others? Say, here am I, send me. Amen. It's all there in, in the call of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. She continues saying, through these messengers, He is in active communication with every part of his dominion. How is God in active communication? Through his angels. angels. But where does he live? In heaven. She continues saying, by his spirit he is everywhere present. And then she explains what she means. By his spirit he is everywhere present. Through the agency of his spirit and his angels, he ministers to the children of men. Then she says, above the distractions of the earth, he sits enthroned. All things are open to his divine survey. That's his his omniscience. Is there anywhere that we can flee where God is not there? No, because God what? God sees all. And you say, what about Psalm 139? Where can I flee from your presence? Do you know, if you read carefully that psalm, you discover that it's not the psalm about the omnipresence of God it's a psalm about the omniscience of God read it carefully and you'll see it says you understand, you know you are acquainted all of those are cognitive words so notice she says by His Spirit He is everywhere present. Through the agency of His Spirit and His angels He ministers to the children of men. Above the distractions of the earth He sits enthroned. All things are open to His divine survey. And from His great and calm eternity He orders that which His providence sees best. Amen. So, so God is seated on the throne of the universe. The Holy Spirit is in the command and control center. And the angels are the foot soldiers. And the angels are saying, hey, uh, we'll, give you, uh, we'll give you some wisdom on how to overcome the enemy and how to win souls for Christ. I want to read you an article. After I preached this sermon, actually a series of sermons in my church, a church member the following Sabbath came and he says, hey, I have an article from Signs of the Times that has this very concept that you shared with us. I said, oh, good. It's one in, a, in, a, a one, in one of our denominational publications. Because some people have said, this is so, so different than what we've ever heard. But I can assure you it's biblical. And it's in harmony 100% with the spirit of prophecy. Now listen, I want to read this. It's actually a short editorial comment by the editor of Signs of the Times, It appeared in Signs of the Times, September 23, 1889. September 23, 1889. Listen carefully. In the second epistle of Peter, 121, it is said that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The books of Revelation and Daniel reveal the fact that angels have revealed truth to the prophets. From these facts, some have concluded that the Holy Ghost was an angel or angels. Are you understanding the argument? Some have assumed that the Holy Spirit was an angel or angels. And that any other view makes the Bible contradict itself. That this is not so, one simple principle will show. And born in mind will enable our readers to solve similar problems. It is this that because a principal is responsible for the acts of his agents or subordinates, the acts or works of, work of his agents may properly be said to be his own acts. Do you understand what he's saying? For instance, we say, that house was built by Mr. Jones. Or, that printing press was made by Mr. Holt although Mr. Jones never did any work on the house, nor did Mr. Ho on the press. But they caused the work to be done. Therefore, it was their work. Thus the Father created the world through the Son. God spoke unto the fathers, but he did it by the prophets. So God has revealed his will to men. Sometimes through angels, sometimes through men but in both cases the Spirit of God fitted the messenger for his work gave power to his message and prepared the heart of the individual to whom it was sent to receive the truth spoken the Father, the Son or the Holy Spirit or rather the perfect oneness of all three was the principle the angel or the man was the agent now to say that the Spirit was an angel would prove by the same rule that the Spirit was a human being but neither is true The angel was only the messenger of God. The power, the all, was furnished by the Spirit of God, who is above and before all angels and all creatures. Simple, right? Now, I want to close, and then we'll take a a good period of time for questions. Um, I want to end by mentioning several things uh, that corroborate what we've studied this morning. I was once reading the book Patriarchs and Prophets. I'm not going to give you the references, but as I said, if you, if you, if you put your email down here, I'll, I'll send you a copy of all of this, plus the additional 50 pages that we're not covering here, so that you're able to study it for yourself, look up the context, look up the quotations in the Spirit of Prophecy and so on, uh, because, you know, we need to check out everything that people say, make sure that it's, that it's kosher. I was once reading Patriarchs and Prophets. And it was the chapter that deals with uh, the offering of Cain. And you know, it's amazing how we read uh, things many, many times and we don't catch something and then suddenly we read it and we see something we hadn't seen before. You remember uh, in Genesis chapter 4, it says, The Lord God said to Cain, the Lord God said to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the gate. The Bible says the Lord God said those words to Cain. But Ellen White in Patriarchs and Prophets says that God condescended to send an angel to speak those words to Cain. And so in our Western way of thinking, we say, well, if the angel did it, then God didn't do it. Uh Uh-uh. You see, the angel only says what God told him to say. So he's God's spokesman. But God did it through the ministration of the angel. And, there, and then I, I said, This is amazing. Let me look at some of the other events in the Old Testament. And I discovered, I'm going to mention this very, uh, very quickly. The Bible says that God translated Enoch to heaven, Ellen White says that God sent angels. To translate Enoch to heaven, the Bible says that God gave Noah his message. Ellen White says that God sent an angel to tell Noah what to preach. The Bible says that God shut Noah in the ark, he shut the door. Ellen White said that God sent a powerful angel to shut the door of the ark. We already discussed the Tower of Babel. The Lord God confused their languages and scattered them. Ellen White says two angels were sent. Joseph's dreams were given by God, but Ellen White explains that an angel gave him his dreams. Pharaoh's chariots. It says the Lord God took the wheels off of Pharaoh's chariots. Ellen White says that angels took the wheels off. Jericho. Ellen White says that Jesus, who was the commander in the Old Testament of the angelic hosts here on earth, She says that that Jesus commanded the angels and the angels tore down the walls of Jericho. The Bible says God buried Moses. Ellen White says that God sent angels to bury Moses. The manna from heaven. The Bible says that it was angels' food. Not because the angels eat it, but because the angels run God's bakery. (laughs) Yeah, it's Psalm 78 says, it calls it food of angels. Because, because it's bread made by the angels. So, but, but you read John 6, it says, uh, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, God gave you bread from heaven. Amen. But it's through the ministry of the angels. And I could give you example after example. Uzzah, the Bible says that God struck Uzzah dead. Ellen White says that God sent angels that struck Uzzah dead. And you have New Testament examples. I'll give you only one: the case of Philip. An angel comes, and an angel is talking to Philip, He's saying, this, this, "There's this individual who's looking for the truth. He wants to know what you know. He, he wants to know the meaning of Isaiah chapter 53. The angel is saying that. And then a little bit after after the, the, this uh, story, as it transpires, it says, "The Spirit said to Philip." So, who was it? The Spirit or the angel? both of the above. So, folks, there is no scarcity of power. There's just a scarcity of cooperation with that power. You know, and with the youth that we have in our church, the devil has distracted most of the youth in our church. The GYC youth are the exception After all, there are not only 8,000 youth in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Many of our youth are simply going down the wrong road and they don't even know it. And the responsibility lies at the hands of their leaders. Sad to say. So when we go back to our churches, we have to share what we've learned here. You know, this spirit is contagious. The spirit of GYC is contagious. I know because I have uh, young people at my church that have come to GYC and they're much involved in GLOW and in visiting nursing homes and uh, organizing evangelistic meetings. You know, they come back on fire and they actually put their faith into practice. And that's what we need to do when we go back home. And folks, if we did that, the work would be finished soon because it's contagious. Amen. See, there are good contagions too, Amen. not only bad ones. So I pray to God that what we've studied here will not only be something that's, that's in our brains, not only has it given us better understanding, but that it will embolden us and it will empower us to go back to our churches and make a difference. Amen. Make a real difference there in reviving the church through the power of the Holy Spirit as well as evangelizing our communities. How about that? Is that something that you want to do when you go back? Want to raise your hand? If that's your desire, praise the Lord. Everyone raise their hand. Praise God. Okay, now we want to take a few questions. Uh, Please, we have to go uh, to the microphone. And uh, we do want to save. I'm going to cut this off in about uh, maybe 25 minutes because we want to save some significant time at the end for, for prayer. Uh, so uh, let's, let's take our questions. Yes, brother?
0: Thank you very much.
2: Um, I, I have a question. I'm slightly confused um, because I thought it was a wonderful message. But the, the miracles of Christ, especially with the raising of the dead, I've always read where that's attributed to the creative power of God and so then I go back to creation and I wonder was there a role of the angels then that's implied in creation or is is that different if, if you could just explain that for me that would be great
1: I, I believe that at, at creation the Bible makes it very clear that creation was performed by God how the angels were involved in creation I have not found anything in the spirit of prophecy that specifically says that the angels were involved in the process of creation but on the basis of the pattern that we find in scripture I believe that probably the angels were involved at least in some of the work of creation. Not in giving life obviously because the angels cannot impart life because only God who is life is able to impart life. Uh, but, but I do believe that the angels did play a role uh, in creation. But I don't, have, uh, I don't have any quotations from the spirit of prophecy. I simply go by what the Bible says that God spoke, and it was done. With the resurrection of Lazarus? Well, Jesus prayed to His Father to resurrect Lazarus. But but really, the power that resurrected Lazarus was the power of God. Now, li- listen carefully. Being that you bring this, this uh, question, very important question, uh, who resurrected Christ? <laughs> was it the Father... Was it an angel? Was it Jesus? I didn't read you the statements, but they're, they're in the material that I'm going to send you. God sent a powerful angel from heaven. It says in early writings. And the angel said, "O thou Son of God, thy Father calls thee. Did the angel give life to Christ? No. What the angel did was authorize Christ by his father's command to take the life that was within himself. Are you with me? In other words, in Jesus was life. Original, unborrowed, underived. But listen carefully. Ellen White has a statement where she says that Jesus was in the tomb and he was a prisoner of divine justice and only his father could release him. I have that statement in the material as well. So what, what is the Father saying? He's sending an angel to say, Your Father releases you. And so Jesus said, Okay, now I can take up my life again. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up. And incidentally, this is where you have another mistranslation in the King James, where it says, I have power to lay it down and to take it up again. Power is not the correct translation there. The word power is dunamis. But the word there is exousia, which means authority. Of course, he had the power too. But it means that he had the authority to what? To lay down his life and to take up his life. Does that help? Okay, praise the Lord. Yes. Hello,
3: Pastor. Um, you read this quote that was very interesting. It said, With such an army of workers as the youth rightly trained, might furnished, how soon will the message of a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior might be carried to the whole world. And it read on um, with very interesting points as well. One thing I wanted to bring out is um, where I am in London, many of our young people are struggling with crime, violence and different things like that. So when you make brought, when this quote was read, um, it said an army of workers yes. as the youth. Does it mean that the young people have been called um, specially for a specific calling? Or the same calling is given to the whole church, but is it that the young people are called to maybe push it more fer- hardly or fervently or um, I'm not too sure.
1: If I'm Very right good right. question. Well, the, the, I think the quotation itself um, gives us an inkling of what God has in mind. Let me look for that statement and see if I can find it, it here. In, um, she says, listen carefully, with such an army of workers as our youth, rightly trained, mm. might furnish how soon the message will be taken. So... Uh, let me ask you, uh, when, when uh, an army goes to fight in the field, do they recruit today and send them out tomorrow? Mm. No. What happens? Mm. They go through basic training, right? So the youth have to be organized and trained and then sent out. It's not just a matter of, you know, go out and witness. No. Wow. They have to be trained and prepared in order to go, to, to go out.
3: Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, sorry. One more thing: Is yes. the training that we have at the Seventh-day Adventist Church Pathfinders, um, as well as Bible studies? Because is it that Pathfinders are practical side and Bible studies more spiritual and things like that, or I'm not too sure. i have just wondered. I think
1: there are many things. I think there's uh, you know, for example, Glow is a big thing these days. There's there's Glow training. At least in California, we have a whole day which coming is coming up in, uh, I think it's January 8, okay. where. Uh, Kids from all over Central California Conference come to be trained on how to use Glow Tracks. Okay. What to say, what not to say, how to distribute them, where to, where to take them, and so on. You understand what Glow is, right?
2: Yeah,
3: yeah I've seen it uh, on the track.
1: And, and uh, you know, they, they can be involved in evangelism. They, they can be, inv- be involved in so many different projects, giving Bible studies. Pathfinders is part of it. Okay. Uh, Master Guides is another part of it. All of this is training. Uh, for, for youth to serve in different capacities. Okay. Thank you, Pastor.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a two-part question. Uh, first of all, um, you know, Satan was, uh, his fate was sealed uh, when Jesus died on the cross. Uh, was the fate of his angels sealed at that time?
1: The fate of uh, Yes, the fate of Satan and his angels was both sealed okay. at that time.
4: Okay, that was a question we had last night. And uh, another one, you mentioned that Satan, uh, when he is uh, bound to the earth uh, for the thousand years, will his angels be uh, alive at that time, or will they be laid down as well?
1: No, no, they, they will be alive. Uh, in fact, uh, the passage that clearly shows that is Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 23. Um, there it says that God, in fact, let me just, let me see, what did I do with my Bible? Here it is over here. See, the, there are several millennial passages in Scripture. It's not only Revelation 20. Uh, there, uh, Isaiah chapter 24 is a very clear millennial passage. Um, let's just go there for a minute. Isaiah 24 is describing the second coming of Christ. I won't go into all of the context. And then when you get to verse uh, 21, it says, It shall come to pass in that day, that is the day of Christ's coming, that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones. That's uh, Satan and his angels. And on earth, the kings of the earth. Those are human beings. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. So their punishment has two stages. First, they're cast into prison. Many days pass. And then they're punished afterwards. And then, of course, in verse 23, the new Jerusalem comes to view. So, yeah, the devil and his angels will will both be here and they'll be alive. But uh, the angels are not mentioned because, really, the originator and instigator of sin is Satan. He is Azazel. The other angels will suffer for their own sins. Okay? Okay. okay. But the, the devil, he will, he will suffer for his own and also for all of the sins that he led God's saved people to commit. Okay?
5: Yes, question about the um, blaspheming the Holy Ghost in the spirit of what you're talking about. How does it bring more relevance to those statements about, you know, when Christ said, you can call me whatever you want, but basically, you know, when you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, that, that's... You're sinning against uh, this is this is final, you know. So how does that relate when you when you're talking about angels being okay. His messenger?
1: The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through the angels speaks to the human heart. There are several que- uh, quotations that I didn't read. They speak to the conscience, and when people say no, 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 the voice speaks at the same volume, but they become deaf. And so the point comes when the Holy Spirit speaks and they can't hear anymore. And that's the sin against the Holy Spirit. But the angels are still involved in enlightening the conscience. It's, there are some amazing statements from Ellen White. Uh, maybe I can just read one of them here. On, on the angels, you know, practically everything that the Bible attributes to the Holy Spirit, uh, Ellen White attributes to the angelic hosts. Uh, let me see if I can find a couple of statements here. Yeah, probably not going to be able to find it right this minute. But she has a series of statements. Oh, okay, here, here, for example, this one Christ Object Lessons 341 and 342. She says, when unconsciously we are in danger of exerting a wrong influence, the angels will be by our side, prompting us to a better course, choosing our words for us and influencing our actions. Hmm. Thus, our influence may be a silent unconscious but mighty power in drawing others to Christ and the heavenly world. And there are many, many other statements. So basically, the Spirit speaks to people through the angels using human beings. And when people say no, no, no to the Holy Spirit, eventually it comes to the point where the Spirit speaks that people don't hear anymore. They've crossed the line between salvation and perdition by their own choice.
2: This might be a little off, but I do thank you for your study. Um, but we've been having a, a discussion on the nature of christ i know if you can give me a simple answer i don't know if that, that would be possible but uh the things that i've read in the spirit spirit of prophecy says that that people want to make him altogether man or altogether have the nature of god mm-hmm. and so i kind of put him somewhere in the middle because we know that he was born like us but yet you know he didn't have a completely fallen nature how do you explain that
1: Okay, I'll just give you a short answer because uh, it would take a long time to give you a a fully documented answer. But I don't believe that Jesus came with the nature of Adam before the fall. And I don't believe that he came with the nature of Adam immediately after the fall. Hmm. I believe that Jesus took the sinful nature of the converted Adam. Okay, all right. In other words, Jesus took the sinful, regenerated nature of Adam. In other words, he took Adam's nature after Adam repented, confessed his sin, and received a new nature to counteract the old. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. So, in other words, Jesus, Jesus, uh, I would say, was born, born again, (laughs) if you please. I like so, that. so I think the argument cannot be either before or after. You have to tweak it and say that he came with the sinful nature of Adam. Because if Jesus had come with the sinful nature of Adam immediately after the fall, Jesus could not have overcome sin. That's right. It would have been impossible for Jesus to overcome sin without a new nature.
2: That's right.
1: But that leads me to my next question.
2: Um, my next question has to do with... You know, are we born in sin and shaped in iniquity? You know, uh, individuals tend to think that um, you're not born in sin, that you have to make a choice, that it's a choice. But I I think it's impossible, you know, without the Holy Spirit to be converted. So can you, you know, I guess that's a question because, you know, we don't want to go to the limit of what the Catholics teach, you know, because they take it to the nth
1: degree, but yet. Right. We are not born sinners. We are born with a sinful nature. In other words, we're born born with a nature that is inclined to sin. Okay? So we're born with a sinful nature. And I think that's what David meant when he said, In sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that when I'm born, I'm born a sinner. Because the Bible makes it very clear that sin is a choice. Sin is transgression of the law. The Bible makes that very, very clear. God is not going to hold you accountable for something that you did not choose because everything boils down to the freedom of choice. So, are we born sinners? No. Are we born with a sinful nature that is inclined to sin? Yes. That's why we need to be born again so that the born-again nature can overwhelm and control the sinful nature so that we can live a holy life in sinful flesh. Okay.
5: Hello, Pastor. Bo. Um, in Patriots and Prophets, like uh, I think chapter 22, the last second last paragraph, like talking about Moses. Right after now, he was preparing to go to the um to the mission. Now, like an angel appeared to him, and Ellen uh, White writes that uh, no explanation was made as to the reason. But yeah. quickly, his wife performed the act, and Moses quickly remembered that right. he had neglected to perform right. the duty. And I was wondering what you think of that part because right the last paragraph she also talks about right in the time of trouble people will not be able to be protected if they have like a non-duty like, that they haven't performed yet so the angels can't protect them. So for him that was like the crossing line for Moses after that then he was able to be protected but I was wondering what you think of
1: that. Now that story is in Exodus 4. And and that's an interesting story. It goes along with what we've been talking about. You know, if you read there in Exodus 4, it says that when Moses was on his way back to Egypt from Midian, that that the Lord met him along the way and threatened to kill him. Ellen White says that the Lord sent an angel to meet Moses and threatened to kill him. The Bible says the Lord threatened to kill him, but it was really an angel that came and threatened to kill him. Why? Why? The context indicates that God had clearly told Moses that he should circumcise his son. But his wife was opposed to the idea of circumcision. And so Moses neglected to do what he explicitly knew that he should have been done because of the influence of his wife. And so what he did, he immediately (laughs) told his wife he has to be circumcised and his wife actually was the one who performed the rite of circumcision. And I think the parallel that Ellen White dry, draws with this is that we cannot, uh, with any safety, violate a clearly revealed requirement of God and expect to survive during the end-time crisis or actually to survive in our <coughs> spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. So, basically, it was the issue of circumcision. Okay, thank you. I think it's Exodus 4:11 and 12, right in there.
5: Pastor Bohr, uh, we know through Scripture that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, In the case of a demonic possession, we know that uh, actual demons live in the person. When I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, do angels live in me, or am I filled with the person of the Holy Spirit?
1: That's a very good question. It always comes up. Uh, You know, the, the aspect of demon possession. Let me just share with you what I have discovered in my research. When the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is in me. What the, what the, that, that's a metaphorical expression. What it means is that the Holy Spirit, through the ministration of the angels, is controlling my mind. Whoever controls your mind controls your whole being. Is that true? Right, right, right. For example, why does a person speak with a different voice when the person is demon-possessed? Well, because the devil possesses the person's vocal cords. He possesses his brain. Are you following me or not? Right, right, right. right. No, it's, it's by pos- can a person who possesses your brain possesses your brain cause you to behave in any way once he controls your brain?
2: Absolutely. Right,
1: right. Have you ever heard of hypnotism? Yes. Mm-hmm. Can a hypnotism lead someone uh, by controlling their mind to kill somebody else? Yes. Mm-hmm. And influence their actions? Absolutely. So what happens is that the devil and his angels control the mind and you say, "Well, what about the supernatural strength?" Do you think the devil knows where the adrenaline flow is in our physical system? Right. right. Of course he does. Supernatural strength. That's where it comes from. Now, Jesus used the same type of language when he says, for example, in John 14. Let's read that because it's very interesting. John chapter 14. And let's read beginning with verse... Um, nine. verse 9. Actually, let's begin at verse 8, because this is a, has a clear answer to your question. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now listen carefully. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? So does Jesus literally live inside of his Father?
5: Not literally, no.
1: Does the Father literally live personally inside of Jesus? Does the Father jump into Jesus? No. Absolutely not. He says, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. How does the Father dwell in Jesus? Jesus has the mind of His Father. Are you understanding me or not? Yes, yes. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Did Jesus in John 17 pray, I in the Father, the Father in me, I in you, you in me, speaking about the disciples? Yes. Does that mean that uh, then when, when he says, you know, I in you, that Jesus jumps inside the disciples? No. Nope. And it, he says, you, he says about the disciples, you in me. Does that mean the disciples literally, personally jump inside of Jesus? Absolutely not. It is a metaphor that refers to what? Unity. Intimacy and unity and the same mind. Amen. Right. God wants us to have the mind of Christ. And that we, we, we get by contemplating Jesus. Then, then, you know, we have His mind. We become one with Him. Our will becomes one with Him. Our desires will become one with Him. And He dwells in me. Amen. That doesn't mean He's physically in me. It simply means that He has control of my whole being because He who controls your mind controls the whole being. Does
5: right. that help? Yes, it, a, a bunch. Um, there something just came up to my mind. There's a statement in Lynn G. White in um, The Desire of Ages. It's the chapter that speaks about the cleansing of the sanctuary where she states that uh, the highest cherubim and the lowest human, they're both made for the Spirit of God to abide in them. Does that mean that angels abide in another cherubim and angels abide mentally? The same answer...
1: The the same answer I gave you for the first is the answer for the second. See... We, many times we take this metaphorical language literally. Mm-hmm. Like for pouring in. You know, we need to understand that this is, this is a figure of speech. You understand what a figure, figure of speech is?
5: Right, right, right.
1: We have to be very careful about taking figures of speech literally. Yes?
6: Pastor Boy, it was a blessing to listen to the, your ministry this morning. My brother-in-law asked me a question about guardian angels, and it kind of prompted me to do a study on the role of you know, our guardian angels. And from my very elementary, rudimentary study of it, I actually couldn't find anything that explicitly states in Scripture that we have a guardian angel. Could you sh- shed some light on that?
1: There's only one verse that I know of that strongly hints at that. Uh, Jesus says, speaking about the, the children, she says, they're angels. In, you know, uh, so it gives the impression that each one has his own angel because the possessive is used. Uh, but there's not a lot in Scripture to indicate that, uh, that we have a guardian angel, but uh, that text would seem to indicate that we do.
6: Does Sister White uh, shed any light she on does. that?
1: She does. She says that we have a guardian angel is appointed to us from the moment of our birth and is with us to the moment of our death. And he's the first one that we're going to see when we resurrect. Do you have that and reference? We, uh, I, it's, I know it's in the book Education. I would have to look, at, look for it in my computer. Uh, and she says that uh, we'll be able to entertain a dialogue with our, with our guardian angel uh, when we get to heaven. And he'll tell us about all the dangers that he delivered us from, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Thank you. So it's going to be a very interesting experience. Hi. Yes.
6: I was going to also say there's also a book. It's called uh, The Truth About Angels. That's Ellen
1: White writes. Excellent book. I want to get a real yeah. good book uh, on, on what I've been talking about. The Truth About Angels. It's one of the lesser known books of Ellen White. It's a compilation, but it's a powerful book. Yeah. My
6: question actually pertains to the end times, which we were talking about Could earlier. Could you speak a little bit
1: louder so everyone can okay. hear you?
6: Um, at the end times, at the close of probation, um, we know that Jesus is not the mediator anymore, right? But he's with us until the end. Now my question is, the people that come in in the loud cry, because we are supposed to get ready for our translation now in perfecting our character, right, living a sin-free life. Now, the people that come in in the end times during the loud cry, they haven't had that chance to prepare themselves. How do, how do they deal with the end times? Bella
1: White says that the, that the work will be expedited, and what would normally take years will only take months.
6: Oh, okay.
5: Uh, My question is, uh, uh, I'm I'm looking for some sort of resolution between um, what the Old Testament says about how the law was given and what Paul says in Galatians 3.19 and the involvement of angels. Right. So Exodus seems to suggest that um, God himself descended on Mount Sinai. Yes. Patriarchs and Prophets says, the Father and the Son and a host of angels came upon the Mount. Correct. Now... Uh, the Bible also says that God spoke with Moses face to face, and there was no dark speech so i 'm wondering what Paul means when he says that um, that the law that, that the angels were involved in, in in the dispensation of the law
1: yeah, you know when it comes to the, the Ten Commandments are in a special category there 's several things that show that the Ten Commandments are different than anything else number one as you mentioned, Ellen White makes it explicit that the Father and the Son descended upon the mountain. It wasn't only angels. Also, the Ten Commandments were written with God's own finger. And God spoke them with his own voice. This was such an important, such an important thing, the Ten Commandments, that God chose to do it himself. All of the other laws and regulations, you know, that, uh, that God gave, he gave Through the angels to Moses, Moses wrote in a book and then he gave to the congregation. And as you know, Ellen White says in Galatians chapter 3, when it speaks about the law there, it's both the ceremonial and the moral law. So I believe that she's probably referring to the work of the angels as they reveal the ceremonial law to Moses. Okay, thank you. Yes.
5: Hello, Pastor Boa. Um, My question has to do with Acts chapter 2 verse 1. I'm just trying to get a better clarification when it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that mean the day came gradually and that day was the main event? Or what does it really mean when it says fully come?
1: It means at the precise moment when the day of Pentecost should begin, it began. <laughs> you know, uh, Pentecost took place 50 days after the waving of the sheaf of first fruits. The waving of the, uh, of the first fruits of the sheaf took place when Jesus resurrected. So you'd have to go from that moment, from the moment that he waved the sheaf, it says in Leviticus 23, the moment that the priest waves the sheaf before the Lord, you shall count 50 days. So it means that when that time, exact time, 50 days later, came, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And uh, the amazing thing is we can know what time it was that Jesus presented himself before his father at the entrance of the sanctuary in heaven the morning of the resurrection. It was, it was at 9 o'clock in the morning. Because, and I mentioned this in a previous session, uh, you know, uh, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place at 9 o'clock in the morning. So how do we know that? Because, you know, when they started speaking in other tongues, there were some people there that said, oh, these guys, they're just drunk. Another said, how can they be drunk? It's only the third hour. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, in other words. So we can know uh, what time of the day the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was poured out at 9 o'clock in the morning. And what time Jesus presented himself before the Father. It was also at 9 o'clock in the morning. Because Pentecost came exactly 50 days after the waving of the sheep, it says in Leviticus 23. Yes?
0: Yeah, I have two short questions. And um, the first one, I guess you already answered it because i just wanted to ask why the lord came with two angels to abraham in uh, genesis chapter 18 and yeah. was that because it was such an important event there also at that well, time uh,
1: well one of those angels was christ yeah okay yeah yeah, th- 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 because yeah
0: i mean uh, there were two angels and uh, yeah. yeah christ
1: uh, well, well jesus also presented himself as the angel of the lord so he was one you know he was an angel but he wasn't equal to the other two Mm. Um, I I, I believe that probably the reason why is because there's a typology in this story. Immediately when you read that three angels came to Abraham, (laughs) that says, is there perhaps a relationship with another place in Scripture where you find a reference to three angels? You say, well, that's speculation. Not really. Because angel number one is really the angel that, that says the hour of his judgment has come. And you notice Abraham's conversation with, with Jesus, who is one of those personages, and they're, they're dialoguing about, well, is there, if there's 50, Lord. If there's, if there's 30, Lord. You know, and, and, the, and the, it goes down. And then Abraham says, will not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? So there you have the judgment angel. Then you have another angel that tells Lot, Get out of here! (laughs) Because we're going to destroy the city. What does the second angel of Revelation say? Come out of my people. And then, fire and brimstone fall from heaven. The third angel warns that whoever receives the mark of the beast, fire and brimstone will rain upon them. And so you immediately start saying, hey, there's a typology here. And I have a whole sermon in the Cracking the Genesis Code where I deal with this specific story of, of, the, of the three angels that came to Abraham, it's amazing. God gave this as a parallel to what happens at the end of time so that we could understand a little better on a broader scale uh, the, the three angels' messages that go to the world.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, also, in... Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 4 and verse 26, it says, Also said, Had a son, and he gave him the name Enos. At that time, they started to call for the name of the Lord. What does that mean? That At that time, didn't Adam and Eve call for the name of the Lord before that? Or
1: Okay. Uh, uh, the explanation to that is found in the very next chapter. In chapter, uh, chapter 5, you have the genealogy of the righteous beginning with Seth and ending with Noah. Uh, and Ellen White explains that from that mo- th- things had gotten so bad that from that moment on, they distinguished themselves by calling themselves by the name of the Lord, explicitly and overtly and outwardly, uh, to distinguish them- themselves from the daughters of men, as they're called in Genesis chapter 6. Thank you. Okay.
6: My question is... Uh... The Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son has been working during the whole history. But do you think that the work of the Holy Spirit has changed in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Oh, yes. Because Jesus promised, if I not go to heaven, the Counselor cannot come. But the Holy Spirit has been working always. The yes. miracles in the Old Testament and the New Testament, why Jesus had to say, if I not go to heaven, the Counselor uh, good, will not come. Good
1: question. Excellent uh-huh. question. Um, Really, in the Old Testament, the commander of the angelic host was Christ. You know, Christ would come personally, the angel of the Lord. You know, he deli- I delivered you from Egypt, he says. And the angel of the Lord does this, and the angel of the Lord does that, because Jesus personally did the work. But when Jesus assumed a human nature, and he's encumbered by humanity, then he sends the Holy Spirit as his representative to carry on the same work that he carried on when we were in Old Testament period. So the Holy Spirit now, Ellen White says, He's the representative of the captain of the Lord's host. So in other words, the Lord is the Father. The captain is whom? Jesus. And the representative is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit today, simply, Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm encumbered by humanity, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to intercede, I'm going to begin my work in the holy place, but I can't leave you orphans, so I'm going to be with you through the work of the Holy Spirit.
6: So it means that in the past the Holy Spirit was not, the miracles in the Old Testament was done through Jesus' power or the Holy Spirit?
1: The, The Holy Spirit, well... Uh, the, don't, we don't find in the Old Testament any reference to the Holy Spirit doing the miracles and car- taking yeah. off the chariot wheels and so on. But it's under the, the command uh-huh. of Jesus Christ. Okay. And then the Holy Spirit now makes effectual the work of Christ since Jesus assumes humanity.
6: Okay. Second short question. about a, I have heard a sermon of uh, the group of against the Holy Spirit. They use the, one of the verse, the baptizing formula in Matthew. I just want... I believe in the Holy Spirit, of course, right. but they use very uh, sharp this, this question about uh, yeah. baptizing in the name of the Holy Spirit, and there is only one quotation in Matthew. The rest right. is in the name of Jesus. Right.
1: Why? Right. Okay, that's a good, a good question. Uh, if you want the whole scoop uh, on, this, uh, t- on this question, I have a sermon that's titled Baptism in the Name, and I deal with the issue of the baptismal formula. I think the mistake that they commit is that the baptismal formula does not say baptizing them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says baptizing them in the name, which means that all three have the same name. Are you with me? Because, by the way, the baptismal formula doesn't give us the name, the name is not in the baptismal formula. Because the word Father is not a name. And Son is not a name. And Holy Spirit is a function. It's not a name. So the baptismal formula doesn't give us a name. But the book of Acts gives us the name. The name is Jesus. Do you know what the name Jesus means? It means Jehovah saves. Or Yahweh saves. What I'm saying is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all share a common name which is Yahweh. And, and, and you can find this clearly in the Bible. Jesus repeatedly during His ministry says, I don't come in my own name. I come in my Father's name. And then Jesus, when He sends the Spirit, He says, uh, He will come in my name. So in other words, they all, all three share the same name, which is Yahweh, Jehovah saves. So, uh, you know, and you would have to listen to the whole presentation Um, you have for example a very important verse in Isaiah 44 where God tells Israel you listen to the angel that I sent to you who is Christ he says listen to him because my name is in him he says my name is in him in other words he shares my name and the spirit shares the name they all three have the same name in other words and so there's no contradiction between the baptismal formula and the references to baptism in the book of Acts yes
7: Um, I just had a a question about... uh, We were talking about how Christ was raised from the dead. And I just wanted to read a quote, or three verses, rather. Um, In Romans 8, verse 11, it says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then over in... um, Corinthians 4.14, fourteen. Second Corinthians sorry, 4.14, it says, um, if I can find it, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Mm-hmm. And then in um, Acts 13.33, it says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could elaborate. I, I understand that the spirit is the one that well, is it's active a, in this. Yeah, so. It's a
1: cooperative effort. <laughs> you know, uh, the father only could release Jesus from the tomb. He was a prisoner of divine justice and uh, and so the father sends an angel actually the father through the holy spirit sends the angel looking at the chain of command and the angel says to jesus your father has said that you that you can be released and so then jesus takes up the light, takes up his life by the life that is in himself so is everyone involved is an angel involved is the spirit involved is the father involved is the life that is in Christ involved absolutely see God operates by the chain of command God, we can learn a lot from the way that God administrates the universe God is the great delegator he delegates responsibility could God do everything himself sure but we only know the way God operates by what is revealed in scripture and in the spirit of prophecy God has chosen to operate in this fashion and so, and so was was the Spirit, and was the Father, and was Jesus, and was there an angel involved? They were all involved in the process.
7: Um, caveat to the question. Okay. At the cross, Christ says, "Into Thy hands I commit my spirit." Yes. So God has the Spirit. I, I don't exactly understand how to explain that. I have ideas yeah. about it of, yeah. from my studies, but. Can you elaborate on what that means in conjunction with how he was raised? And, and secondly, the begotten part is, is the anti-Trinitarian, yeah. one of their strongest arguments, if you want to call it a strong yeah. argument. Um, but this seems to answer that question, at least from my point of view, yeah. because the begotten happens.
1: The, the, wor- the, the, word begotten, the word begotten is a mistranslation. It's the word monogenes. And really, monogenes does not mean the the only begotten it really means the unique or the one of a kind son Um, and, and we know that because in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2 God says to Abraham take your son your only son whom thou lovest and take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him the fact is that Isaac was not Abraham's only son the word that is used there is the Hebrew word yachid, which means precious, one of a kind, or unique. You know, special. There's not any other one like him. Ishmael, yes, there was an Ishmael, but Isaac was the son of the covenant. And in the New Testament, monogenes comes from two words. One, genes, means simply. One of a kind, or a unique one, or a special one, or a precious one, one who is distinguished from everyone else. So, so really, uh, we're thrown off by the translation, only begotten. And you'll find that in many modern versions, it translates unique son, or the only son, in, in the broadest sense of the word. Now, um... In terms of, what was the other issue in terms of the Trinity?
7: Into thy hands I commend Oh, my into spirit. your
1: hands I commend my spirit. Okay. This is a very important question, and you need to listen to the whole presentation. On audio verse, there is a, a sermon that's titled, Three Inseparable Doctrines, where I connect the second coming, the state of the dead, and the judgment, which all have to be understood together. As Adventists, we have not fully understood what the spirit is. You know, we usually, when we talk about the state of the dead, we say, uh, you know, the body returns to the dust, the spirit, which is the breath, leaves the body, and the person ceases to exist. But there's more to the spirit than that. Ellen White explains that the spirit of man is his character. She says in Bible commentary. You can listen to the whole sermon for free on audioverse. She says, you know, Jesus says, Into your hands I commend my spirit. When he resurrected, when, he re- when Stephen died, he says, Into your hands I commend my spirit. Possessive. When Jesus resurrected the little girl, her spirit returned to her. The Spirit is simply the life record that God keeps in heaven of each person. It's your biography that's recorded in the heavenly books. And if God was talking today, he wouldn't talk about books. He would talk about electronics. But God uses books in the Bible because that's the way people kept records. But God has a very sophisticated way of keeping an exact record of who we are inside and out, without missing a word, a thought, a feeling, an emotion, without missing anything. God has in heaven, in his records, an exact transcript of us. So what happens when Jesus says, into your hands I commend my spirit, Jesus is saying, Father, save my self-identity. So what happens on resurrection morning? Does God only return to Jesus on resurrection morning? the power to breathe what does he return with the power to breathe with the power to breathe he returns who Jesus was when he died he returns his self identity with his breath Jesus resurrected Jesus did he remember his experiences with the disciples absolutely so when he says into your hands I commend my spirit he's saying preserve my self identity because you promised that you would resurrect me so, on resurrection morning, the Father gives him the power to breathe, and he gives him the record of his life. He inputs his, the record of his life into him again. Are you with me? Now, Ellen White has an interesting statement about the wicked after the millennium. She says that after the millennium, the wicked resurrect, and she says they begin the current of their thoughts exactly where they ceased. Hmm. That's amazing. So what is Jesus doing when he resurrects the wicked? He returns to them their life identity identical with every single detail up to the moment that they drew their last breath. And that's why they resurrect just as wicked as when they died. So they're not only getting their breath back, they're getting their self-identity back. Does that help? Listen to that sermon. It's it's a powerful sermon on the state of the dead. It's called Three Inseparable Doctrines, and you can get it on audio verse. Yes.
5: I know there's kind of a debate about this, but I kind of want to know what your view is. At the end of time, since there will not be a mediator, um, does this mean that God's children will have had to stop sinning yes. since Jesus is not there to intercede? Absolutely.
1: Okay. Absolutely.
4: Yes. Uh, from my study, I understand that uh, Pentecost, they happen... Uh, during the times of the disciples, was uh, simply a uh, transcript or a parallel of the event that took place in heaven of Jesus' sacrifice being accepted. Correct. So it's nothing on earth that uh, initiates the descending of the Holy Spirit, but it's the other way around. And um, in the Old Testament, I don't remember the the reference now, it says, pray to the Lord in the time of the latter rain. So I wonder what, on what time does it refer and what are we to specially pay attention in taking place in heaven that will um, trigger, sort of speak, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the large measure.
1: The beginning of the judgment of the living is the event that the heavenly event that is announced on earth that that is beginning. I firmly believe that. Have you ever noticed that every time that Jesus begins a new work in the sanctuary, there's a a public announcement? When Jesus came to begin his life, John the Baptist. When Jesus was going to die, the triumphal entry. On the day of Pentecost, the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire. 1844, the Millerite movement. Every time Jesus is going to... I have a series called Catching Up to Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> because every, there's not only the, the great disappointment of 1844 every time Jesus moves his people are far behind yeah they, don't they misunderstand did John the Baptist understand what he was preaching are you kidding you know when, when when he introduces behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world hallelujah later on he's in prison and he sends his disciples go ask him if he's the one we're expecting He thought he believed in one kingdom Messiah was going to come and destroy those who were wicked and he was going to establish the Jews at the apex of the world. Well, he was wrong. He preached, but he, he didn't fully understand his message. Is the same true with the disciples at the triumphal entry? Did they understand what they were proclaiming at the triumphal entry, attracting the eyes to Jesus? Are you kidding? They were wrong about the event, but they were right about the time. It was the fulfillment of the 70-week prophecy. Were they profoundly disappointed? Absolutely. Same Same happened on Pentecost. The disciples, you know, when Jesus gathers the disciples on, uh, there on uh, the Mount of Olives, they say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And Jesus says, bye. I <laughs> didn't get it. Are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? And so... God's people always have to catch up. And you say, why doesn't God just wait until His people catch up and then do it? Because Messiah has a calendar. And the event had to take place at a certain day, at a certain time, according to Bible prophecy. So Jesus couldn't say, oh, I'll postpone it, you know, until the people understand. No, He says, I'll go ahead and do things according to my calendar, and they'll catch up.
4: Yes? Uh, Just in relation to that, the disciples knew the the date, if you will, because it was on the day of the Pentecost. I don't know if they fully understood what Jesus was going to do. They, so they had some blueprint. I, I doubted they, they knew that Jesus was presenting His sacrifice before the Father at that moment. And what about for us today? I understand there is no prophetic dates after 1844, but is there There's any? no
1: prophetic dates, but you know, that's the reason why we need to study Scripture in order to understand what God has in store in the future, not only after the close of probation, but during the period of the judgment of the living. Because there's no date. 1844 was the last date. Time is no longer. Prophetic time is no longer. So now, our only guidance has to do with events, not with timing. So we need to study, we need to study these things, and we need to study particularly the sanctuary. Because that's where all of this is revealed.
3: Hi, Pastor. Um, Me again.
1: Didn't you just ask a question? Only one per person. (laughs) (laughs) Just
3: kidding. um, While I was sitting down, you made a comment about the Three Angels message and how it kind of related to Lot and Abraham. Yes. And I was just wondering, I don't know, you didn't mention the name of that sermon. Could you just expound on that point a bit more? Uh, It's called
1: uh, Three Angels Over Sodom, something like that. Okay. Or... Sodom and the, uh, I think it's Sodom and the Everlasting Fire. It's been so long ago since I, I did that series. It has 52 one-hour sermons presenting all of the Adventist message from the perspective of the book of Genesis. It's a fascinating study. The book of Genesis is a prophetic book, very closely related with Revelation. At, uh, you can get it at the Secrets Unsealed booth, or you can get it online at secretsunsealed.org. I've got to leave pretty quick because I have to, right, I have to fly out at 255. Uh, I have to be. I have to be at my church for candlelight communion. See, my youth pastor is here, and my other pastor is on vacation, and we have a candlelight communion. and I'm the only ma- man left standing. Aww. So, uh, so uh, we'll take the one more question, and then I'm going to have to run, uh, pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, th- I appreciate your understanding. Yes. Yeah.
5: Well, I've been uh, Co Putter for a while now, and I was just asking. I just wanted to ask if you had some material on. Uh, uh, the last days, and how the co-porting work or missionary work uh, uh, in itself uh, will be the one to finish and fulfill the, um, the work. Uh, and uh, also, my friend here said something, if you had material on the seven trumpets. So. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> I do have material on the seven. I wrote about a 150-page syllabus on the seven trumpets. Um, and I also have it, uh, you know, we, we, I'm going through the book of Revelation now in prayer meeting. We've been at it for about four years. We're in Revelation 13, verse by verse. And uh, we have all of, all of the sessions on MP3 and on CD. On so if you, so you, if you want to get the whole series that I taught on the trumpets in audio, you can get it in, in MP3 and also on CD. But you can also get the syllabus. Uh, at the Secrets Unsealed booth, there's about, I think it's close to 150 pages, uh, specifically on the trumpets. And there's also one on the seals. And I have all the notes on the, on the churches, and I'm working on those uh, right now. So, uh, Well, uh, thanks for being here. I know that I see that our troops have decreased. But we still want to have a season of prayer before we uh, bring this to an end. Uh, so um, let's just gather in groups of two or three and ask for the outpouring of God's Spirit that the Lord will empty us of self and fill us with His Spirit so that we can go back and do the work that God has for us to do. Thank you so much. God bless.
0: This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.